and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about books and art and old things and uh, stuff that happened a long time ago. My name is Thomas Magby. I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hello. And Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. That is me. And today we will be um, discussing... Uh, this is actually... Is it self-plagiarism if you're quoting... If you're stealing from a paper you wrote, what, 20 years ago? At the, no. Yeah, 20 uh, years ago at this yeah, point. Yeah, I'm just going to read my grad thesis for, <laughs> for the next uh, actually hour or so. I've heard weird things about that, that some professors will get mad if you reuse a paper that yeah, is yours. it's self-plagiarizing if you don't cite yourself. But that, that you, doesn't... You have to cite yourself if it's from another paper. This was a big <clears throat> thing at UT. I remember this. Oh, that's oh, right, because you, you have given rights over to whoever your publisher is, oh, I this, guess. This is even if you're not published. It's... If you're reusing a paper, the problem is that you're not doing original work. That That's what they would describe the problem as being... Um, so anyway, this is a tangent. Anyway, we were prepared to listen to your 27-page... No, how long was your thesis, actually? Probably 57 pages. Is it actually? Let's yeah. read your... So you're going to start reading your 57-page thesis? No, no, we're not oh, going to read okay. my master's well, thesis. Okay. But, oh, so we are going to be discussing a book today uh, uh, by C.S. Lewis, one of his last novels, I think maybe his last novel, called Till We Have Faces. And that's it terrifying. is... Yeah. All these characters with no faces. That's right. With no yeah, faces. Seriously. It's kind of disturbing. Um, is that a horror book? Or? It's a horror book. Wow, okay. It's about mirrors. Wow. Like a room of mirrors. Interesting. I know. It's like the book that when people are like, oh, I love C.S. Lewis. And then they talk about the books he's read. And then they're like, yeah, you ever read Till We Have Faces? They're like, yeah, that one's, I didn't really get that one. Right. That one's a little weird. Uh, for me, that one was that hideous strength. Yeah. The, the, his space, I've actually never finished his space trilogy. I just I actually first re- one. First one was great. Is I it? actually reread that hideous strength recently, and I liked it way more second time around. Is that the third yeah. one? Yeah. Is Paralandra the second? Paralandra's number two. What's the first one? Uh, out of the si- Silent Planet. Sil- yeah, out of the Silent one. Planet. Yeah, I think as a like a kid who just absolutely loved Star Wars, and that was my whole frame of reference for sci-fi, going <laughs> and reading that, I was like, blah. <laughs> this is not Where are the, the spaceships? Yeah. Where are the TIE fighters? Um, and now that Star Wars has been absolutely crushed and destroyed. What are you talking about? In this world. Are you talking about, wait, we're, we're talking about the greatest Star Wars movie, oh episode word. nine? Gosh, I don't understand. It. I, I didn't even watch it. I is just, that true? I have not seen the last movie. Can we do a live watching and then record it and put it on Patreon? Sure. Guys, let's do that. that if you Twitch. want yeah. to, classical stuff want Twitch. To, I'm okay with classical that. stuff. Twitch. Graham watches the last Jedi. Yeah, called, the, what's it called? The Skywalker Rises. I don't know. Yeah, that's yep. You know. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll do that. Be, the Skywalker stands up. The Skywalker. That'll be yeah, terrible. Elevates. Yeah. Good. Um, anyway, so um, till we have faces, it's it is a weird book. It's weird. And it's one of those books where at the end of it, you're like. Something else is going on, and I don't know what it was. There's the story, but it seems as if as the story moves forward, there's something that if you haven't grabbed onto, or there's almost like this little interpretive framework that if you don't have, the story ends up becoming just kind of bizarre at the end. Um, so we're gonna, I'm going to give you a little overview of the plot, and then I'm going to give my defense as to what I think Lewis is working out until we have faces. Um, my thesis for the podcast is... That C.S. Lewis is writing, or he's trying to solve some philosophical questions. Um, the book is a story version, a narrative working out of his own view of romanticism. Oh, and okay. um, and and actually, his own view of natural theology. Maybe that's mm-hmm. a better way to put it: of how God speaks to us through um, through natural means as opposed to revealed means like scripture. You said or so visions. this is your thesis right now. Was this also the topic of your thesis? It was also the okay. topic of my thesis. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I wrote that, let's see, 2008 is not 20 years ago. 
12 years ago. Yeah. I mean, so I, that's, you know. It like kind of rounds depending on how you, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What, what, what do you want from me? <laughs> Round down. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, back in the day. So, uh, and actually someone emailed me from the school saying like, hey, I remember you wrote, wrote this. I'm doing a paper on Tilia Faces. Can I read your thesis again? It was a professor or something. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I sent it to them and I, and I had, I reread it and I hadn't even looked at it <laughs> since probably 2009. Right. And woof. Uh, it's embarrassing. I don't know. Like I always typos and stuff, or what do you mean? No, it's just you read this and you're like, oh, uh, I had like a Chesterton quote at the mm, beginning, and it was just cringy. You know, who hasn't? There's probably like a T.S. Like Eliot excerpt mm, in there at some there it point. Is. That's what I'm talking about. I think about. I put a chapter break. <laughs> I, I reread my college papers, and I am just awed at the depth <laughs> and gravity, mm, and yeah. like none of us have anything we regret yeah. from insightful our past. precising language yeah. and how how i never have two theses in one paper mm. that are somehow at odds with each other and confused and all of my evidence makes sense and <laughs> the worst part about doing a podcast until we have faces and i've listened to a couple of other podcasts until we have faces is hearing everybody try to pronounce the characters names okay because the queen's name is spelled o-r-u-a-l oral oral Oral. Orwall. 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 Narwhal. Ruwal. Orwall. You could just go real barbarian with me like, Arrah. Arrah. I like that better. Um, Can you do that every time? I'm just going to refer to you as the queen because uh, I smart. don't want to go down. It's like saying rural juror from... Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> There's one queen, and that's Beyonce. <laughs> okay, thank so you. So if yes. we're going to call her the queen, we just we call her queen Beyonce. Bay. Uh, oh, queen Oral. Anyway, so I'm still going to refer to her as the queen. So thank I'm going to give the story in brief. Um, so... Uh, uh, when the book starts off, it is an, the queen is elderly and she is looking back on her life and she has, is the queen of this little city state kingdom called Gloam and, um, real cheery place, real cheery place. And so she's been the queen of this place and she is looking back on her life. She's near death and she has had a complaint against the gods her whole life. Um, and the story ends up being a retelling of the Cupid psyche myth. Um, actually, Hannibal, do you even know, do you know the Cupid Psyche myth as our resident, like, Greek hmm. myth, I, I mytholo- read it once. What happens is one of the daughters is supposed to go and be married to Love, who mm-hmm. is Cupid, and then she, I, I, I don't think there's any confusion about it actually being a real thing. She is not allowed, I, I think what happened is Cupid knows that, I think his mom hates this girl, yeah, or one of the goddesses like hates that. this girl, mm-hmm. and so he's like, you, uh, are not allowed to know that it's me, it's just a god that you are with and then one of her jealous sisters convinces her to disobey his command about never turning on the lights in the bedroom Mm -hmm. and she's like how do you know that you're not sleeping with a monster he could be terrible and awful and you don't know what you're spending every night with it could be a total disastrous thing and so you've got to figure this out so she goes she holds up a lamp and i think she like holds the candle too long and then the wax drips on him wakes him up and then in all his glory he freaks out he, he freaks out and I, I think he dissolves the marriage and then i think she has to do a bunch of stuff to get back in his good graces that's right psyche goes off to uh and she is um uh the god uh, yeah psyche goes off and has to do these tasks like you got a hill of rice and sand and you gotta like separate the rice from the sand and um and like gotta climb some sort of mountain like all these sort of then, arduous tasks herculean-esque yeah. tasks that's what, stuff that no one can do but the the ants all help her yes. do the rice. So, she's mm-hmm. so lovable that everybody helps her out and yeah. helps her finish. And ultimately, things. she succeeds. She in all succeeds those okay. and then gets to go gets to be back with Psyche or with Cupid. I think that's how it works. Something like that. Anyway, that's the Greek myth, and you can read about that in uh, one of them. I want to one of the there has a few versions of it. <laughs> yeah. I forget where I read uh, it. Just it's, like it's um, one of the old. Yeah, I, I looked up some ancient re- resource for it. Yeah, yeah. You just Google it. Um, Aeschylus or whatever his name is. Sure. 
Um, anyway, so wow. Mean the head guy, the classical <laughs> mean, the, <laughs> mean the head guy of the Iliad. Yeah, Aeschylus and Hector. <laughs> oh my word! I, well, I I heard about a a, a teacher that. Referred to him as Achilles, Achilles, or Achilles, like that guy on Wheel of Fortune. That's rough. That's a first year problem, right there. Aeschylus, Aeschylus, Aeschylus. Okay. Okay. Um, Wait. Then there's a Lucius uh, A P U L E I U S. Yeah, there you go. That's who this says. Oh, that's who. Okay, it was Apuleius, not Achilles. Okay. So, and then in this story, uh, it turns out. So this is a retelling of that story. So the queen, when she was young. Um, was a princess and her father was a terrible person and he was mean and he was cruel and he had two daughters and then his wife died and he went and he married another woman who was quite sort of, she was pretty but she was sort of weak and sickly and they had a daughter um, who's named Istra but everybody refers to as Psyche and this daughter is beautiful, gorgeous and not just like beautiful like she's very pretty to look at but there's just something about her presence of just personified innocence and majesty and beauty and um um all of the things that would bring a tear to an old man's eye right like just psyche is this sort of embodiment of youthful beauty and innocence everybody who sees her is just put at ease and is brought back to happier times in their life. And being in the presence of Psyche is just, um, it's just like a satisfying, enjoyable time. She's just, this, just she's a peach. Mm. Um, anyway. Sorry, this is in the original story or this is until we have faces? This is the until we have faces story. So then does the, the queen, who at this point is not a queen, does she get along with this? Yes, yeah, so queen, uh, so uh, she is quite a bit older and the queen loves her oh, her sister good. um uh, loves her and and is quite protective of her and um there's another sister who we're not even going to talk about i mean she in the novel she plays a, a role but um it's sort of a minor one uh, who's sort of more jealous and just cares about like dresses and boys and that kind of stuff um but anyway so the queen oral um the princess at this time yeah she's she loves her sister and she's very protective of her because Basically, everybody kind of wants a piece of Psyche. Right. In, not in any sort of malicious way. It's just everybody wants her around. She is has this sort of majestic presence that um, that everybody wants to be a part of. Anyway, um, as it goes on, Psyche's majestic presence begins to... Um, people begin to think that she actually can heal you from diseases. And there's a plague that goes through uh, Gloam. <laughs> and um, and the townspeople are like, bring us Psyche. We want to see Psyche. Psyche can save us. Psyche can heal us. And Psyche doesn't think that she can, and she's a little hesitant, but she also wants to bring sort of peace and happiness to the villagers. So she agrees to do it. And the dad's like, I want my daughter parading around out with all right. these dirty, you know, rabble. And um, <laughs> oh, it's rabble. This is fun. Um, and yeah, um, and, and the uh, uh, oral is doesn't want psyche out there because like she's just worried that um sort of the desire for psyche could also turn into you know like like sort of a, a, a consumptive desire and psyche could be in danger anyway she's protective right. um um there are disputes as to whether or not psyche actually does heal people um people feel like they are healed just being in psyche's presence but uh, she's not like magic or anything but anyway this begins to tick off uh the priest of the town and he, the, they worship the goddess Unjit, 
who is a uh, like a fertility goddess. So she's these, kind of like. Hmm? Where do these names come from? Uh, okay. Lewis. Okay, wonderful. Um, Unjit or Ungit, and she is a fertility goddess, and she is similar to an Aphrodite, except like a a cruel, cruel and vindictive one. Actually, right. like Aphrodite. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty. That and sounds like her. Um, so in the temple, they do they bring sacrifices to Aphrodite for her favor, and there's some just sort of great descriptions of you know the smoky, bloody temple dedicated to the goddess of love, but being kind of this like dark place where things are killed. And anyway, so the priest decides, you know what, Ungit is mad because all the people are worshiping Psyche, and that's why we have the plague. Oh, we got to sacrifice her, and so the priest goes to the king and he convinces the king, yeah, you got to do this. And um, Ungit demands it. The, the goddess demands it. And the king's like, ah, okay, fine. Um, and and uh, the princess, Oral, is like, no, absolutely not. Like, right. why? You're going to kill your daughter? This, is, this doesn't make any sense. And so the king's like, all right, how are we going to sacrifice her? And the priest says, we're going to take her up to the mountain, and we're just going to tie her to a tree, and um, we're going to let the, uh, the god of the mountain, we're going to let sort of, you know, uh, nature consume her. We're going to let the goddess take her. We're going to sacrifice her. We're just going to leave her there, and then, and then that's it. And so, and this was this a new ritual, or have they been no? Doing they, they, yeah. This has been a thing that that right. they did, but it hadn't been done in a long time. I actually don't really remember if it's new they came up with it, or if it's just like the ancient ways. Um, regardless, but they're it's doing it. Ungit who demands it. Right? It's Ungit who demands it, according yeah. to the priest. Right. So Oral's like, fine, I'll just like go up to the mountain the next day and like free her. Um, but then she falls sick in in a pretty deep uh, pretty deep sickness and uh, is in bed for weeks. And then when she is healthy enough, she goes up beside herself. She goes up to the mountain to either um, tend to her dying sister who's tied to a tree or to bring back her remains. Um, when she gets to the top of the mountain, she finds Psyche in good spirits and good health and just chilling out. And Psyche's really happy to see her. She's like, oh, Oral, welcome. Um, and the prince, Oral, is like, Psyche, what's going on? Who's been taking care of you? And Psyche says, I was rescued by the god of the mountain and we are married. And I'm married to the god of the mountain, and he has brought me into his beautiful, into his palace, into his home, and he has taken care of me. And and the princess Oral is like, no, what? <laughs> uh, okay, Wait, fine. The, where are they? They're outside. Why, sh- why is she incredulous about the palace and the god? We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. So they're, they're just anything, chilling right? outside, and yeah. she's like, okay, well, take me to the palace right now. Right. And or um, Psyche says, well, what do you mean? And Oral's like, let's go to this palace. Like, show me your husband. Let's see this place. And she's like, but Oral, you're sitting in the palace right now. You're in the, you're in the foyer of the palace. And Oral looks around. She's like, uh, I'm in the forest. Right. Who are you married to? Like, what is this guy telling <laughs> a lot you? Of questions, so she yeah. gets concerned right. that how her, you've been drinking water. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. staying hydrated. <laughs> yeah. and, and exactly. Like, you've been in the sun. Yeah. Like eating some nuts um, or anything. Yeah. Like staying. Mushrooms everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, uh, Oral uh, gets concerned and, um, and Psyche insists that they are in the palace and Oral doesn't believe they're in the palace. And, um, and she refuses to go back down to, uh, um, goes back down to Glom with her. Oral leaves and um, sort of frustrated, and she decides that she's going to come back and try to convince Psyche to go home. And this time, she is going to, you know, no matter what, um, she's going to do it. And so, oh yeah, uh, one thing I've forgotten, similar to the, the story, Psyche has said, 
uh, I have not seen the face of my my beloved. He comes in the night and he's forbidden me to look at him. And Oro was like, yeah, red flag, girl. Uh, maybe it's a bandit or maybe it's some sort of monster or maybe you're crazy. You're living in a cave and you think it's a palace and Psyche. But Psyche seems pretty adamant that that's not the case. And she's like, can't you see the palace? And I was like, no, I see a forest. So Oro's like, okay, she's gone crazy. I need to rescue her. And somebody's taking advantage of her. So she goes back home and she gets a lantern and uh, a knife and she goes back to um, uh, Psyche on the mountain and she says, um, you're not living in a palace. You need to come home with me right now. Psyche says, I refuse. I'm not leaving my husband. Then she says, fine, use this lantern. Show me his face. So look at him. Um, uh, so you know who you're with. I'm worried that you're with a monster or bandit. So he's like, I'm not doing that. He told me not to. And then Oro takes out a knife and stabs herself in the arm. And she's basically, and and says, how can you be so selfish? How can you love this bandit or whoever this is more than you love your family? Like, why aren't you coming back and being with your family? Um, If you don't do this, I will kill myself. And she, to prove it, she stabs herself in the arm and Psyche freaks out. And is like, fine, 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 fine. Give me the lantern. I will look at my husband. Just don't hurt yourself. And then as this conversation is going on, um, for a moment, just a little glimpse, the, Oro looks around and she sees that she's in a palace, hmm. a beautiful palace. And everything that Psyche has described is there. And she sees it with her own eyes. And then the palace disappears and she's back in the forest and she was like, what is happening? But she doesn't want to believe it because... Was it in the middle of a storm? Like, wasn't it storming and it was there was a thunder flash and she thought yeah. she saw it or something? Well, she thought she was in it. Yeah, so there, it's, yeah. she doesn't, you know, she's like, are my eyes playing tricks on me? Am I going crazy? It's yeah. nighttime. And she, she also doesn't want to believe that this is true because right. Psyche is now with someone that she loves and is not coming home. Right, yeah. Um, and so Orwell sort of uh, sits by the water and waits and Psyche goes off with a lantern and then she hears a terrible cry. Some sort of, there's some commotion and a cry, and she hears what sounds like sobby, uh, sobby, psyche sobbing mm-hmm. and crying. And then um, uh, Oral has a vision. The god of the mountain appears to her and wow. says that uh, psyche has been banished, and she is sort of doomed to walk the earth, and... Um, she is going to be set upon by powers greater than me, says the god of the mountain. And that's assuming to be the god of the mountain's mother, who is Ungit. And then Orwell's like, what? (laughs) Crap. Holy crap. Um, And then uh, the the god of the mountain continues to speak, and he says something very cryptic to Orwell. And he says, you too shall be Psyche. Not like Psyche? You too shall be? You too shall be Psyche. Uh, is what he says. And Oral takes this to be a, uh, a curse that she too is going to walk the earth and have no home and the gods will be against her and she is going to be accursed. And um, like love has fled her just as love has now fled Psyche. And Oral is, you know, she has, the gods have cursed her. And so she builds, she can, sort of builds up this little hatred for the gods in her heart. Why have they been, why did they first demand Psyche for her death why did then they take Psyche for themselves as, as a wife? And then why have they now banished Psyche uh, uh, from their presence 
Um, that one's pretty easy. It's like they banish Psyche from your presence because of your, because of the queen's actions. Right, but anyway, exactly. whatever. Well, and they couldn't say goodbye, right? Psyche just sort of wandered off. Yes. There yes. was no there was no goodbye moment. It was just Thunder Flash happened, voice came, and then she saw Psyche wandering off by herself crying. Sobbing. And then, so Oro, yes. And Oro also has some hard-heartedness towards Psyche saying, like, why did she, okay, fine, you got banished from the gods, well, screw them. Come live with Come me, home, right? and we'll, like, you know, Thelma and Louise this thing, right? Like, we don't need anybody. Uh-huh. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, Thelma, I do. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So, but that doesn't happen. All Psyche- of our students are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Google it. All right. Um... <laughs> So, and then the queen goes back, and then the story just goes to the queen's, uh, Oro's life. As her, her father dies, and she becomes queen. Psyche's gone. Psyche wanders off. Psyche is gone and wanders off. Okay. And um, when she becomes queen, she, like, sends out messengers and people looking for her can never find her. Um, queen Oro is also incredibly ugly. Hmm. Um, and her whole life, her dad's just been telling her that she's, like, you know, super ugly, and she's never going to marry anybody, and... So he basically gave her a great education. It's like, you're going to be in charge because no one's marrying you. So, And you're the eldest. I don't have any sons. So I'm going to like make, teach you how to fight and ride and do all these sorts of things. And he hires her a tutor who is a little Greek stoic named the Fox. Um, and anyway, so she has been bred to be a queen. And she ends up becoming a queen. And she is a fantastic queen. She is an architect. She is a diplomat. She is a warrior. Um, when her father dies, uh, a rival city sort of comes sniffing around thinking that they're going to take over and she defeats their champion in single hand to hand combat. And everyone was, and she's wearing That's this awesome. like mask. Cause she was training all her young life. Right. Cause, yep. exactly. Cause wasn't it that her dad is like, well, you're never going to get a husband. Exactly. You might yeah. as well train with a sword. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so the champion was like, I can kill a girl. And then they fight. And then the queen oral kills him. And everyone was like, dang, she's awesome. And she vows to wear a mask for the rest of her life because she is so, she's been told her whole life that she's ugly. And she actually finds out that by wearing a mask, she uh, actually can create an incredible amount of power. Mm. Um, Everybody wonders what's behind there. And rumors begin to abound that she must be beautiful. (laughs) If she's wearing a mask and no man can marry her, she must be an absolute beauty. She's doing it so so that no one fights over her. She's doing it so that no one fights over her. And... Um, she realizes that if she gets married, she kind of won't be in charge. Right. And um, and she feels like she is competent enough to rule the kingdom. And she is. She Dude. brings peace and prosperity and happiness to this kingdom. Are there men that are interested in her now because of this? Allure? Yes. And so yeah. there's all these like people that come. They're trying to marry her. And she brushes them off. And they're like, oh, man, she must <laughs> be so beautiful uh, wearing this mask. And everyone thinks she's beautiful because she is good. Right. Um, anyway, so she is great at running this kingdom. And, um, but she always harbors this little hatred towards the gods. And she also makes sure that priest loses his job <laughs> when she becomes the queen. one from the mm-hmm. beginning. Right. And, um, is there a new priest or just sacrifice no my sister? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't remember if there's a new, pri- I think she like puts in some sort of patsy as a priest okay. and you know, he's like a yes man and yep. whatever. Um, but she sort of lives her whole life with this little hard heartedness towards the gods and she herself never sort of finds love. She falls in love with her chief of um, the guards, but he is a dutiful family man, and he does everything the queen asks of him. He is a dutiful servant, Bardia, but at the end of the day, he goes home and he's married. And the queen has loved him just because of his of his goodness, but she's never done anything inappropriate or untoward. Um, and as her life goes on, she realizes that this bond that she has with Bardia is not actually friendship, it's duty. And then when it's done, he goes home and he lives his real life. 
and his dutiful life is with her, and, and she's like, oh, well, he doesn't love me, he's, he, he obeys me, and that's different. And she, um, she wants the love from Bardia, but he is just obeying her. Right. Is that, she heartbroken by this She is heartbroken, she's sad, but she's also like, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, anyway, as uh, life goes on, she becomes elderly, and Bardia is on his deathbed, and, um, and she... Uh, decides that she's going to travel. She's never been outside her kingdom, and she travels. And she's traveling outside, and she comes across this little, like, roadside shrine. And in there is a little hermit telling a story to a bunch of parishioners. And it's the story of Cupid and Psyche, the story of her sister. And he's telling it all wrong. Um, He sort of inherited the story of this beautiful girl who married the husband and a wicked sister, was jealous, (laughs) and was like... um, and she's like, I'm not a wicked sister. No, uh, Psyche was, uh, you know, tricked by the gods, and the gods are cruel. And um, and so she decides that she's going to write down the, the the what actually happened, and that's till we this book, till yep. we have faces. And so she sort of concludes the till we have faces with sort of the gods are jerks, and um, and they uh, let's see if I can even find the um, the passage. I didn't mark up this book, but uh, I'm sure I won't be able to find it in a good yeah. Um, so at the, at the end of, of her story, she says, um, um, I say therefore that there is no creature, toad, scorpion, or serpent, so noxious to man as the gods. Let them answer my charge if they can. It may well be that instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into a beast, bird, or tree. But will not all the world then know, and the gods will know it knows, that this is because they have no answer? Hmm. And her charge is basically like, why are you such a jerk? Um, why are you so cruel? Um, why do you make life for us miserable? Um, and uh, so then she decides to end her story there. And then the last half of the book, and remember she had been haunted her whole life with this phrase, you too will be psyche. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and then towards the end of her life, she starts having these dreams about her having to do these monumentous tasks, like the the sand Separating and the, the rice, rice yeah. and the climbing the mountain. And she does all these things, and she can't do them by herself. She throws herself into her work, and she can't do it. And she curses the gods because they've given her this monumentous task. Just like her sort of life. She's thrown herself into making her kingdom a little jewel because she's just so angry and... Um, and uh, she just wants to not think about Psyche and, and the sort of the sisterly love that the gods took from her. Anyway, then the book ends with her. She has had some visions, and there's this scene where she is brought toward, to the gods into the council room. And the gods have said, we hear you have something against us. Please go ahead and read your complaint. And in her hand, she thought she was carrying her story, which is her complaint against the gods. But really, what she has is a list of much more primitive complaints of like, um, I loved Psyche and I wanted her for myself and you took her. She was mine Mm. and you took what was mine. That's basically what her complaint ends up to. Yeah, she doesn't. She start thinking she's saying these wonderful, eloquent things, yes, and then right. over time, she realizes she just repeats. She's realizing thing. she's just saying, "Psyche was mine. She was mine. She was mine. I wanted her. I should have her. You took her from me." And as she, so she thinks, yeah, she's saying these eloquent things, and really, she's saying what truly is in her heart, and what truly is in her heart was that Psyche was for me and my love, and you gods took her from me. And then she gives her complaint, and the gods say. Uh, basically, are you satisfied? And she says, yes. 
And then she says, and you will have, so you have your answer. And then um, they, she sees a vision of Psyche doing the same tasks that she did, mm. but being helped with the tasks. So she actually does separate the rice from the grains, and she actually does climb the unscalable scalable mountain. And she actually does go down to the depth and brings up a box of beauty. And uh, Oral sees Psyche come, and she's near death, and it's all fuzzy and weird. And Psyche comes and gives this box of beauty to Oral, and uh, the queen realizes that the phrase, you too shall be Psyche, was not a curse of being someone who is going to wander the world cursed by the gods, but you too will be Psyche means that she ends up becoming Psyche. She ends up becoming that beauty. She ends up becoming beautiful in the end with the gods. Um, and then the book ends, and you go, what the heck was that? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so you get this sort of like, you get this sense that there is something going on that it's not the, so there's the, the book on the story level so you have the story of what's happening but then you're like okay c.s lewis is he's working out something here and i don't, I don't really get it right um and this i loved this book when i read it be, for that reason i was like there's something going on i never really understood it i think i read it for the first time in high school and i was like that was weird um and then so i remember a professor at the university of toronto my my poetry professor her name was dr rabbit hands um whoa whoa so not, sorry, not rabbit hands, but rabbit hands. This is you're, you're saying the same words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, as a r- 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 like think rabatins, but not but pronounced rabbit hands. Yeah, sure. So Ra- rabbit uh, hands. Rabbit Dr. hands. Dr. Anyway, yeah, poor rab- professor. Yeah. Rabbit hands. Um, don't listen. She, of course, you're not listening. Was she lucky? Because hmm? she, she had rabbit hands. <laughs> uh, maybe no, but she was a great poetry <laughs> professor, and um, she. I remember she gave me some advice or gave the class advice, like she can give me advice. Um, gave the class advice on how to read a poem is you're looking for like a little hole in the armor of a story so that you can understand the poem from the inside. I, I know I've talked about this on the podcast yep. before. Um, so you're looking for some little fissure that will get you on the inside and then you can understand the story from the inside. And oftentimes those little fissures or those little holes are metaphors or the author themselves give interpretive framework to understanding the story. And we sort of talked about this when we uh, were talking about... Um, um, can we interpret like the sword of Beowulf as human technology? Remember that Come conversation? On, that's so good. Come on, guys. Um, and we said no because right. the author doesn't give you license to do that. Correct. Uh, I truly believe that the author does give you license to interpret the story with. Um, I'm just thinking about that argument. Uh, yeah. Swords as new technology yeah. to the Vikings. Yeah. It's like a laptop. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> they totally knew. So the question is what's going on? Okay. And so my thought on this is that. C.S. Lewis is talking about the human's relationship to the divine in nature. Okay. And so to kind of um, sort of spoil the ending on this on this talk, so uh, Psyche, so the Queen Oral is like us. The Queen Oral is a person who lives in the world and experiences a regular ordinary life. Yep. Psyche is this experience of beauty that exists in this world that when you encounter it, you say, yes, that is what my heart has wanted. If only I could be with Psyche for the rest of my days, I would be happy. And then Psyche is taken away from you. That feeling or that person, that thing flees away and you are left aching and longing for that thing and then C.S. Lewis says, and, um, that, and, and sort of you can make a decision. You can curse the fact that Psyche was taken, 
where you can say, what is it about Psyche that I wanted? Oh, okay. So um, so C.S. Lewis talks about this. Uh, I, so this is his view of romanticism. And this is the criticism he has of romanticism when he calls romanticism a spilled religion. And I talk a little, we talk a little bit about this on an old, 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 old podcast on, I can't remember, it's called Romanticism, it's called Deep Joy, whatever the podcast sure. is. So we talked about this. But his philosophy on this is, is that human beings in their life have moments of transcendental beauty, and they just hit you. You have a moment where time seems to stop, and you have this sort of deep, profound moment of beauty. And this is what the romantic poets are writing about. Um, And Lewis talks about this uh, in Surprised by Joy, in his autobiography. He talks about these moments of beauty and how they sort of shaped his career, getting a little toy garden, read it, hearing some poetry read, all of a sudden having a little window open up in his heart that he's like, oh, that, I want to live there. I want to be there. There's this longing and hunger in the human soul. And then Lewis says, and the person who has had that, once they start following that, once they say, this is what I want, and they start going after it, 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 it flees. It is gone. It is like a little animal that runs into the woods that you can't have. And then, and Lewis says, you know, so what do the romantics do is a lot of them spend their life chasing that feeling. Coleridge ends up becoming an opium addict. Wordsworth ends up becoming like a crotchety old conservative member of parliament. Um, um, All these poets end up sort of having this ache, trying to get it back and and never quite getting it. And then talking about how sad they are. And so Lewis is saying like, what is that ache? What is that thing? That seems to be so, that we are so in love with when we are young, but we can't have, and we then become melancholy because we can't have it. What is that? And his um, uh, philosophy on this is that that feeling is a natural, um, sort of our natural sense of the divine, that God has actually built human Mm -hmm. beings uh, well, there's, there's a couple ways you can take it. It's either like uh, a memory of heaven or like or, or the um, um, for a moment um, uh, beauty dis uh, how can you phrase it? Milton has this phrase where when Satan sees the Garden of Eden, he says that um, he was uh, sort of separated from his sin and was quote stupidly good. <laughs> there's this moment where like the beauty of Eden makes him good hmm. just for a moment. Um, remember and makes him remember his goodness. And so Lewis says, maybe that's what's going on, that when you encounter a moment of beauty, all of the fallen nature of your heart kind of gets put on the back burner just for a second, and you remember what it was like to be the way God intended you to be created, and you're like, yeah, that's how I want to live. And then you're, and then sort of fallen nature comes running back, and you're like re- living in the regular fallen world again. Yep. Or that God has created nature in such a way that he gives these little moments, um, almost as little, uh, little moments to ignite your heart so that you will remember, I am longing for something, and it will set you off on the path to looking for it. And C.S. Lewis says, like, the honest heart, if they experience beauty and say, this is what my heart wants, and they follow that honestly, both with their feelings and with their intellect— will come to the throne of God. Um, and so I think Lewis's criticism of his romanticism, Lewis's criticism of romanticism is that they followed their hearts, but they didn't follow their intellect. Hmm. And so when they followed their hearts, 
um, they just sort of like tried to create um, the feeling out of poetry or out of experiences. And this is why all the like as romanticism went on, you have all these like, well, it's almost like you get the Dorian Gray stuff, right? Hannenberg. Um, remember how Dorian Gray is trying to like fill his life with beautiful things? Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing as, as sort of, um, this romantic pursuit separated from the intellect goes on. You try to fill it with beauty and that doesn't work. And you actually end up becoming sort of quite vicious because of it. Or you, um, don't follow your heart and you stay locked in your head and, uh, you sort of like say, ah, that was just youthful fancy. Mm-hmm. And then you get lost in the business of the world. But Lewis says that the honest man, intellectually and emotionally, when he realizes that his heart has this longing in him, if he follows it, it will bring him to the throne of God. Because God, that is how human beings are set up. These little moments of beauty are like these little reminders of heaven or these little homing beacons for heaven. And the problem is that if you fall in love with with Psyche as opposed to the God of the mountain, mm-hmm. Psyche go, you, you can't have Psyche and not have the God of the mountain. They are married. Um, you need to accept the God of the mountain to have Psyche. So this, I think this is what Lewis is working out until we have faces. So, so it's like an analogy for romanticism. It is. It's an analogy for like how romanticism should be. And so, but it gets even trippier as we get to the end. So you can't just have, so let's say that you, you were a young man and, you um, uh, went. You, you went for a walk in beautiful Texas. No, beautiful that, that, that won't like work. Seventy degrees. That outside. doesn't work. It's, ah, it's gorgeous outside. So you go for a walk, and then all of a sudden, you have this sort of moment of peace and serenity and beauty mm-hmm. in the the brushy landscape of Texas. If that could ever happen, Texas is beautiful. Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and you're like, oh my goodness. I love Texas. And that's what you have because you've had this moment and you, you love Texas and you're like, I'm going to move here. I'm going to live here. I'm going to build a house here. This is where, this is what I was made for. I can't believe anybody would want to live anywhere else. Lewis's argument is that you don't actually want Texas. That moment um, has reminded you that you were built for a beautiful existence. And it's not the scrubby brush land of Texas. It's that the scrubby brush land of Texas in that moment reminded you of your true home of heaven. And maybe it could be, no, not your true home of heaven, your true, your true love, which is to be unified with God. And this moment of Texas was almost like a portal to reminding you of that. Shout out Eric Weinstein. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think also a loyal listener. Yes. It, not, there's no, no, way. no way. It's a great podcast though. Um, and so these little moments of beauty are almost portals to remind you of what you're made for. If you fall in love with the portal or fall in love with the thing, it won't sustain itself. It's, it wasn't designed to fulfill you. It was designed to kick you in the butt to get you back to God. So when so, Oral so, says, I want psyche, uh-huh. she can't have psyche. What, what she wants is um, what Psyche ultimately at the end of the book points her to, which is the gods. Um, and when at the end of the book, when Oral realizes that um, um, that the gods have been working in the background uh, to teach her this lesson, and um, and at the end, um, she when it says, "You too shall be Psyche." Um, what Lewis is saying, I think, sort of working out with this book is that in the end, when we become, when we come to God, when we 
have the beatific vision or whatever, when we are united with, with God, we end up becoming that beauty that we experienced when we are on earth. So that moment that we, that beautiful landscape of Texas, um, we don't just long for it to have it and to keep it and to hold on to it and to have it in our little grubby hands because it's mine, my precious. Um, 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 so Lewis is saying that you don't just get that in heaven or with God, you become that beautiful thing. Or the Queen Orwell becomes Psyche at the end of the story. She doesn't get to live with Psyche. She becomes Psyche at the end of the story. That that feeling that everybody had who wanted to be with Psyche, she gets. And then in that sense, she is also married to the god of the mountain like Psyche is. So this is sort of my thesis, is that what Lewis is doing is he is giving this narrative uh, version of what he thinks, of, how, uh, of his answer to the romantic problem. And the romantic problem is there are these feelings of, of deep, moving uh, beauty in the world that don't seem to fulfill us. Now I'm sad. That's the romantic problem. That's all romanticism is that you have you know, sort of melancholy romantics who once felt it and now they don't anymore. And Lewis has an answer to and Lewis, yes, what you're supposed to do instead. And Lewis's answer, what you're supposed to do instead is, well, you can't just follow your heart and you can't just follow your head. You actually have to be honest and follow both of them and say, okay, if there's nothing on this earth that satisfies me, but I have a hunger that I must be made for something beyond this earth. And that's, that's a very sort of famous Lewis quote, right? Um, and he says, and what, you know, what we were made for is to be in communion with God and the divine. And there are moments on earth that remind us of this and kind of like light the fire in our hearts. So if, you know, if hearing the gospel didn't get you on the path to searching for God, well, then maybe this natural experience, this phenomenological experience of beauty will get you on the path. Um, but just like how you can misunderstand the gospel and be the seed in the rocky ground, right. you can misunderstand the feeling and get spun off into feeling land. Um, and um, anyway, so th- this, this is sort of the defense that I have of the book. Um, thoughts. <laughs> it's interesting. So in your Texas, in your Texas example, just to make sure I'm understanding mm-hmm. persons outside falls in love with the beauty of Texas. You would say to that person, let's say that they, you know, let's say it's you, Graham, you experience this love of Texas tomorrow. You go back to Canada and you're there for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You can choose to despair. Mm-hmm. I'll never have that beautiful Texas. I'm only happy again. when I'm in Texas yes. or to see the thing I loved was beauty. Beauty is not only in Texas. Beauty yeah. is here in Canada, beauty is not even just the physical location, right? There's more that is beautiful in the world than just the outdoors or whatever your thing is. Yeah, so I'll give you the example. So the moment of beauty that I had as a young man was I was working at camp, and I had this moment where I was by myself, and I've, I've talked about this in an older podcast, a moment where I was by myself and I was camp. No one was at camp. I was alone that weekend, and it was a gorgeous night. With It had just rained, so you had that wet smell of rain. And I just had this moment of like peace and tranquility. And I remember thinking like, man, I just want to stay at camp forever, right? right. And that's the thought. Right. And now looking back, I realize, well, that's absurd. Like, I don't want to live at camp. In fact, that would be a terrible thing if I lived at camp. Right. And it would be probably pretty, I would probably end up destroying camp the, uh, if I placed all of my longing and hunger in this life for some, for having camp to deliver that to me. Sure. And, and this is the problem, like, 
Orwell would have destroyed Psyche with all of her desire for fulfillment that Psyche could not meet. Right. And if we want to talk about like mimetic desire again, right? Let's do it. Maybe we don't want to. And so, and then this sort of translates to other people, right? Like um, uh, Romeo and Ju- you know, Juliet, I'm teaching that in 10th grade, like they can't fulfill each other's deep desires by being in love. Uh, I, another human being cannot fill up all of that like existential desire that we have for unification with God. They can't. And when we try to do that, we end up destroying people. Um, this is, I also think this is what's, what adrenaline junkies are doing mm. or people that just love music festivals. Right. Because, like, you have this moment, you're at the music festival. Because, frankly, they're awful. (laughs) (laughs) Music festivals are pretty terrible. But you have that moment where the crowd is there and everybody's, like, jumping up and down. And you have this moment, you're like, I don't want to be anywhere else. This is what humans are made for, right? People have that moment in, like, an ecstatic crowd. And then they say, this is what I want. And then you have these people who literally, like, dedicate their life just to going to music festivals, chasing that feeling. Um, And uh, a lot of... The, the chasing of the feeling is something that was beautiful and good in childhood and you've and it's now become perverted and wicked in adulthood because we've placed all of our life's hope on it and when it doesn't fulfill we get we get mad we get angry we get destructive and this is what um, the gods saved psyche from the queen would have destroyed her with all of her longings she would have kept her locked to herself in a little tower psyche's all mine no one right. can have her I'm never gonna let any all the ref, riff raff um, ruin, you know, destroy right. my sister again. Sure. Um, and, and so then the whole book ends up being this weird metaphor that um, we end up in being embodied by or embodying that desire that we had. We will be psyche. Yeah. We end, the thing that we longed for, we get and we become and we're married to the God of the mountain. So it's, Anyway, that was the thesis. That was what my grad thesis was. So the queen's original problem wasn't just that Psyche was out in the field. It's that she was not married to the god of the mountain. It, like there's a there's a jealous jealousy angle. So the the queen's problem was that her she thought her love. So you know she loved Psyche, and she said, "Well, my love for my sister is the strongest thing in my life. Right. Um, what is stronger than than your love for family?" And someone is trying to take my sister away and they succeed, I am justified in my rage right. against God who took away my sister. Um, Lewis has the same interaction with um, in The Great Divorce where there's a mother who um, uh, is uh, so angry that God took away her son and she has such a possessive love for her son and she's like, well, I'm a mother. This is what mothers do. My son is everything to me. Uh, and she has such a like, smothering, protective love of the son um, that has brought her to hell because she refuses to love anything else except her, her child. And later on, the, the angel, or George MacDonald says to the C.S. Lewis, like, God actually killed her son to get, her, to get the mm-hmm. son away from that mother wow. to save him. Wow. Um, now, whether or not God does that, I have no idea. Um, but... His Lewis's point is that there, there is something that feels like ultimate love that isn't, sure. that can go real bad, and that is the possessive love that one can have for family, or for the, your beloved, your your lover, um, thinking that this person is the fulfillment of your heart, when they're not. Sure. Um, 
And so the great mercy for Oro at the end is not that she spins off into bitter anger and madness and, and rage at the gods, but she gets to give her petition to the gods. The gods do not answer her, she's, but there she's satisfied. And then she's given the gift of becoming Psyche. Yeah. That very thing that she longed for, she is. Once she's with, you know, once she dies and is united with the gods. Anyway, so it's very, it's a little, it's a little woo-woo. It is. Um, Again, I, I remember first time going through this, having literally no idea what's happening in the entire, it's because it's split part one, part two, yes. and like the whole second part, it it, it it spins off the rails really quick. Yes. And also because she's, she's near death. And yes, so all it's, these it's sort of, come in and, it's yeah. vision and it's sort of fever dreamy. Yes. And, um, um, that is my best attempt at giving some sort of interpretive structural framework for Till We Have Faces. That, that's, anyway. Sandberg, you took notes, which is terrifying. Yeah, that's what's making me nervous. Oh, I was actually just gonna, taking things I wanted to address when my episode comes oh, out. Oh, well then. No, it was just like, <laughs> this is actually a, a really funny segue into what I'm going to talk about next episode, absurdism, because absurdism takes like the opposite tack on a lot of these questions. I, I was the wondering... purgatory, if, which will be the episode after, is it is another tact. I, I, all yeah. three of these will be very related to each other. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any comment on... I, I always saw this story as about more about self-deception than misplaced loves. Like we, as soon as she loses her sister or shortly thereafter, she puts on a mask that she wears her yeah. entire life. And yeah. that mask is that lie that the gods have wronged her when really she has wronged her sister, right? Mm-hmm. She, she made her sister do something silly because she wanted her sister for herself. And so the rest of the time she has this vendetta out against the gods and she wants all these loves and she, there's this really touching moment where she thinks that remember Bart, what's his name? Bardo Bardia Bardia Bardia. Bardia. She goes, she goes and visits him and she actually talks to his wife and his wife says, are you kidding me that you think I've had the best of him? You've had the best of him. He spends, he spends everything good in him for you. And then I get what's left when he comes home. You sucked him dry is basically what she says. You, you have sucked his love out of him. And I guess it makes sense that she's trying to get love somewhere else, but there's this self-deception where she thinks she has been wronged and she thinks she has been abandoned and she thinks all these things are going against her when in truth, she has wronged all these people. And then so what the, 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 the title of the book, Till We Have Faces, is that we cannot, we cannot come face to the face with the gods until we actually have our own face and truth, truthfully see what is in our own hearts. And at the very last moment where she has this long list of grievances that she's going to read to the gods and then it turns out to just be like... Her own petty desires. Her own petty desires you took... Yeah, my sister from me. This you is punks, mine. You punks. You punks. And then they're like, "Are you satisfied now? Like, it's it's your problem, not our problem." And so I was, I always thought it was a self deception thing. Can you comment on that? Yeah, at all? no, I think that's good. I think I, I don't, I don't think those are incompatible. I think. Um, yeah, and that's what I'm saying. It might be a sub, a sub theme. Yeah, but or or it's that maybe this is Lewis's point when he says this is the era of the romantics. The the romantics are not honest with themselves when they when they go off chasing other pleasures. Um, or the the they feel like the world has stole something they, from yeah, exactly. them. They feel or it's the, broken. Yes, that's right. Um, that's um, the dishonesty. That's the dishonesty that it's the world hasn't actually stolen anything. from The them. world hasn't stolen from it. It was like um, um, God is doing everything He can to try to get you to realize that you are for Him, not only in revealed theology and the work of the church, but also in these moments of beauty in in the world. I uh, like. So, you know, how much more do you need, kids, right? Like, right. Um, uh, and so, th- I, so I think that, yeah, definitely that, um, that her, 
the queen's own self-deception. She doesn't under she doesn't realize what she wants. Um, um, she doesn't realize that she yeah that she doesn't realize that her desires are driving her to do destructive things to other people. That she's sucking Bardia dry, and he's he's a good man, and he is doing his duty. She, um, so you brought she up the tragedy. She's burying herself in her work, that kind of thing. You yeah. you you brought up the tragedy in, right? The tragedy in from uh, I don't think so. The Great Divorce. Wasn't that the, what you're talking about? You're the talking about woman the and her son. Yeah, the woman and her son. Yeah, that's from the Great Divorce. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Is that is that different than the tragedy in? I thought it was the tragedy. I don't remember What's, which one. Well, I don't one? know what the tragedy in means. It's it's a woman and she's like yelling at her son and she has this this young thing chained up next to her that is speaking for her. All this tragic oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then as it speaks, it grows larger, and she shrinks. And yeah, then yeah. It, yes. It like, consumes her. Is it, That's the same encounter, isn't and it? And the angel says, like, I can take you to your son. He's in heaven with God, and you need, and you can come see him. But, and she's like, well, good, because I'm going to take him, and I'm going to go back home. Like, no, you can't do that. Yeah, I think that's that scene. She, she is blaming him, like, yeah. why would you leave me? Yes. I've done everything for you. Mm-hmm. We and should so, do great divorces. As a, as a, yeah, we should. I, I just, it's, she is the tragedian. Like, she has made her life a tragedy. Yeah. And... And it's, and it's her, her own. And she's lying. Yeah, she's lying to lying herself. herself. And that's what uh, the queen is doing. She's lying to her. She's yeah. De- her own pain. She's deceiving. She's deceptive in thinking that the gods have been cruel to her when in fact the gods have been merciful to Psyche. Um, Can I say, I think the tragedy might be a different character. Is it a different one? Because there's Frank and Sarah. Frank um, would take advantage of her, Sarah, by pretending that she'd hurt his feelings. Oh, it's a husband and wife. Mm. What, just again, I, this mm-hmm. is a quick Google search, but I think those just to save the emails that might come in. Okay, yeah, yeah. We'll I couldn't do, remember. We'll it, do it's a great been a while since I read it. Yeah. Um, but um, do you want to read the part about till we have faces? Like where that phrase is used? Is that relevant to? I mean, AJ I, AJ quoted I think yeah. almost word for word. Is that how can we understand? Um, how can we meet, come face to face with the gods until mm-hmm. we have faces? And uh, let's see, if I something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I didn't it's, mark it up. Okay. So then the the romantics then have to be disappointed. They are so enmeshed in that story that there's no getting past. Yeah, and so it's sort of a little hard to like you know pick a romantic and say like, all right, what was Wordsworth's problem? Where did he go wrong? All right, where did uh, Coleridge go wrong? We can do that, but it is much more profitable to say, okay, wherein am I in danger of? of um, turning my relationship to beauty and God into some sort of like sticky, sweet, woe is me, uh, everything is so tragic um, uh, kind of, of thing where you're putting, where you're, you're lying to yourself. Um, because there is something incredibly seductive about wallowing in this romantic so sadness. Yeah. So um, is, yeah. is that the takeaway then to be wary of that wallowing? I think the takeaway is, and this will be very classical, um, is like a, like almost a Socratic know thyself. Like the, the takeaway is to say, like, we're probably, you are not as sophisticated and you are not as primitive as you think you are. Like at the end of it, Oral's claim against the gods were, were basic. I wanted this for myself, almost like a child. And you took it from me and the gods took it from her because if the gods left Psyche in her care, she would have destroyed Psyche with her, you know, her consumptive love. And so I think the takeaway is to say, is, is to really look at your, yourself and say, 
I, human beings are bundled. We are a, uh, we are desiring people. Um, uh, we love, this is sort of the Jamie Smith, you are what you love, um, book, uh, idea that we, we are things that desire things that love. And that is a powerful force that can be, that can be very destructive. And in fact, many of the miseries that we may have in our own lives are because we think we are either wronged or grieved or, um, or search or, or just like doing our best to search after the good. But in reality, like, um, we're just hoping that we're just, we're mad because God doesn't give us what we want. Um, yeah, so the, uh, my takeaway, what I've enjoyed, what I liked about Till We Have Faces is that almost, um, that sort of, yeah, almost painful act of self, of in, inner self-reflection to say like, um, what do I blame God for? <laughs> yeah, sure. Do you guys want to hear? I, I pulled up the quote. Yeah. Sure. The control F function on a PDF is pretty handy. So she makes her complaint and then the gods say, are you answered? And she goes, yes. Uh, new chapter. The complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. Mm-hmm. Lightly men talk of saying what they mean. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox who was her the tutor. childhood tutor. Teeter, yeah. tutor would say, child, to say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words. A glib saying, when the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain in the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time idiot-like been saying over and over, you'll not talk about joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? This reminds me of, so in the book of Revelation, when you are given a stone with your na- your new name on it, mm-hmm. that that happens at the end of history, the end of, of everything, the unveiling, the apocalypse, the revealing of what is actually true. Um, this kind of reminds me of that. It's like, we all have this complaint or we all have this true face that we can put, that we can mask up in our lives. Um, and, um, um, the necessary step of not only, uh, spiritual growth, but maybe even of conversion is to realize the truth about yourself. And, um, and then it's, but it doesn't just leave you there. Like, it doesn't just be like, all right, now you know that you, you are not a man, that you are a worm and that you, you know, you love the good, you love the, the, the sin, you love the bad things. You want what's wrong. That it doesn't end there. God gives you this new name, uh, or you become psyche. You end up um, by the act of of realizing who you are, submitting to God. He um, he doesn't just dust you off and say, "All right, we'll get back there and and try better, try to do better." You are transformed into being psyche, um, and that's the. So to me, that's sort of the that Orwell sort of converts. That, that's what this book ends up being. Anyway, so that's, um, now, I would like, so people would be like, oh man, I want to read that thesis. You do not want to read that thesis. <laughs> do not email me asking me for it. I will not send it. It is it is embarrassingly bad. Maybe if enough of you do. Um, no, no. Post that on um, Patreon. Can I read it? You cannot. No right. one can. This. Let's just have this be, 
like my attempt at making, be the first, making it a little bit better. It'll be the first thing we stream on Twitch. Ooh, it'll be a live reading, reading of... Wow. <laughs> anyway. Every paragraph, uh, AJ and I will comment on what we thought of the previous paragraph. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be like a four-hour uh, takedown. Um, perfect. So th- this was referenced earlier, but it ties in well with what Graham is talking about. The episode he mentioned about deep joy and romanticism is literally called The Deep Joy of Romanticism, episode 32. So please check that out in the back. We backlog. didn't call it something funny? Uh, 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 fart, 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 the deep joy of romanticism. <laughs> ha ha ha. Lol. And then um, episode 32. Um, <laughs> okay. Someone so, else can be in charge if you guys want to do all the work. That's fine. You guys can do it. No, you're doing great. Whatever. I don't have to be in I charge. I think my last one on Purgatory had yo at the end of it, which is very funny to me. Anyway. Purgatory, yo. Purgatory, yo. Purgatory. Purgatory. It's, it's a pun. Yeah, it's a pun it's, on Purgatory. Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah, great. Okay, fine. <laughs> sure. Cool. Episode 32 is the deep joy of romanticism. If you want to hear more about this, um, when students are asked like their favorite you know thing they learned or favorite lecture, uh, uh, Graham's talk, I almost called you Mr. Donaldson. That's weird. Graham's talk on deep joy comes up very often. So It's because... It's because they're young. But if you want to hear that, episode 32 is a place to go for that. One of my favorite experiences was a, I, I was playing the stag dance, which we do every year. And it's mm-hmm. usually an electronic dance, like lots of techno. And we did it in some art space. Mm-hmm. And I finished with, I think it was during this song. It was Strobe, a version of Strobe by Dead Mouse, And I remember seeing her standing in front of the speakers just sort of staring at the floor, her arms wide in an open embrace of the music coming out of my my speakers. And she came out later. <laughs> and she was she was like, I think I experienced deep joy. Thank you, Mr. Hannibal. That was amazing. And I was like, oh, whatever, you know, whatever rings your bell, I guess. That's high praise. Awesome. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. You can find us on Twitter at Classical Stuff. It's spelled funny, but if you search Classical Stuff, it will show up. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can find us on Patreon, where we have in-between episodes, a few Patreon-only episodes, a chance for asking us questions, which we answer every month, all kinds of fun stuff there. Check it out, patreon.com slash classical stuff. And I think that's everything. Oh, one last note. If you are waiting for YouTube episodes, I've been working on getting them up, but every time I try to render, my video card commits suicide and just mm. decides it doesn't exist anymore. And then it sends all of the stuff to the processor, which then overheats mm. and shuts down my computer. So I'm working on working out some tech issues with rendering. I will get up those episodes as soon as I can. I'm sorry for the delay. But hey, at least we're getting the audio out. We got the right? audio. So every Tuesday. So you got that. Cool. Yeah. But that is it from us. So for Graham, AJ, and Thomas, this is us saying goodbye. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Bye.